Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. All right, I think I will go ahead and get started. Um, my name is Hannah Riley Bold. I'm a research director here at the Women in Public Policy Program, which uh, gives me the privilege of, on most days, hosting this uh, research seminar. Um, so I'd like to welcome you uh, to WAF, where we are committed to closing gender gaps in the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. Uh, I'm going to introduce our, our speaker in a moment, I'm very excited about, uh, but I wanted to also, before I get started, welcome um, WAF's virtual community. So we sit here in a small uh, uh, seminar room, but uh, the the seminar conversation has actually been downloaded in podcasts over 18,000 times at this point. So we're delighted to be actually part of a much uh, broader conversation. With that in mind, that there are all these listeners, we have a couple of ground rules that we ask people to follow, including uh, turning off uh, phones. Um, uh, but also that uh, you know when you uh, pose a question that it's actually a question, <laughs> and that make sure that it, that it really follows with the, the stream of the conversation so that it, that's a little bit easier maybe to track down a freewheeling conversation just with a small group, but considering our, not only that we have a lot of people in the room, and, but also a broader audience, we ask that we keep questions and comments on track. Now I get to introduce our current speaker, who is Amy Smith. Uh, she is a professor of public policy and public affairs at a sister organization just on the other side of the city at the um, Public Administration Program at the McCormick Graduate School at UMass Boston. Um, Amy is widely published and um, celebrated. She's got uh, best article awards from the American Review of uh, Public Administration, for instance. But um, she's one of these scholars from public management who um, draws this bridge between organizational behavior and management studies, which is largely in business schools, and the study of public organizations. The literature of public organizations, for whatever reason, is sort of diverged from that, from the literature that's in business schools. And Amy is one of these important folks who draws a bridge. Um, and also points out important areas where um, there's lots of research um, on private sector organizations, but less in public organizations. And one space of that is uh, public sector careers. And so we're gonna hear about some of um, Amy's uh, wonderful work that she's doing, mapping out the careers of um, um, public servants, and then also some really interesting gender questions that are associated with that. So please join me in welcoming Thank Amy. You. Thank you, uh, Hannah, for the lovely introduction. Um, so as Hannah said, I'm Amy Smith. I'm from UMass Boston, and I'm delighted to um, have the opportunity to present some of my research today um, on a, a project that we're calling Climbing the Ladder gender and careers in public service. And um, while I'm here presenting today, this is a larger project that I'm working on with a colleague, Deneen Hatmaker at University of Connecticut, and two doctoral students at UMass Boston, um, Catalina Baracella, who's here, um, and Sushmita Subedi, who couldn't be here. So um, I'll spend a few minutes talking about the background and motivation for the larger project. And then I want to present findings from two of the studies that were are sort of in progress um, at this point and talk a little bit at the end um, about some of the um, directions for future research and hopefully we can have some questions and some feedback and a hearty discussion. So um, if we were to think about public sector organizations, 
These are like government agencies, for example, and they operate under public sector values. And two things that are key or core values for public sector organizations is social equity and representation. So this is the idea that we believe that public sector jobs should be equally accessible to everyone in the population. And corollary to that, we believe that those who work in public sector organizations, bureaucrats, those unelected individuals, we believe they should look like the people that they serve across a variety of demographic characteristics. And we believe this because we think that um, if bureaucrats look like those that they serve, a variety of interests will be represented in the decisions made in government. And representation or representative bureaucracy also has symbolic value in government organizations. Um, when people interact with government and they see that bureaucrats look like them, they're more apt to feel that they've been heard. Even if a decision doesn't go their way, they're more apt to feel that they've been heard. Um, they're more likely to cooperate with government or co-produce um, with government, and they're more likely to feel that government is accessible. So in a normative sense, in public sector organizations, we care about social equity and representation. So in organizations that care so much about social equity and representation, we still see a lack of gender diversity in the leadership of these organizations. And gender diversity in organizations in general is important, but in particular in leadership positions, because these are the people that are making decisions about how to allocate resources or what an organization's priorities are going to be. And gender diversity in leadership also has implications for um, mentoring and retaining women, for instance. So we care about social equity, we care about representation, but women still remain underrepresented in the upper echelons of these organizations. And there's a number of explanations, at least in theory, as to why women are still underrepresented in public sector organizations, a place that cares a lot about gender diversity. So one explanation is about human and social capital. So this is the idea that um, men have an advantage in accessing, accumulating, and invoking social capital in order to rise into leadership positions. A second explanation is about gender stereotypes and our stereotypes about what leaders are, and this idea that men and women are suitable for different types of work roles, in theory. Um, and a third explanation is about familial expectations and work-life conflict. Um, an example would be um, women don't rise into leadership because um, they can't um, negotiate their devotion to both their family and their devotion to both their career. So while these explanations are helpful and useful for framing the way we think about gender diversity in leadership, they're really about why women don't get into leadership positions. And we don't know a lot about why women do. So following some of Hannah's work, actually, on private sector organizations, we're thinking about these questions in public sector organizations. We have very limited information on how both men and women sort of arrive into these leadership positions. We don't know what the career paths look like for people who've achieved top-level leadership positions in public sector organizations. And if we knew a little bit more about these career paths, um, we might be able to design workplace policies um, that are better equipped for promoting gender equity um, in leadership positions. We might be, um, managers might be better um, equipped to um, think about things like work-life conflict and developmental opportunities that they provide for the people that work for them. So this, this larger project, um, Climbing the Ladder, Gender and Careers in Public Service, thinks about some of these issues. So today I'm gonna present 
um, the findings from two studies that are part of this larger project, and I'll talk at the end a little bit about where we're heading next. Um, so the first um, research question that our first study addresses is what do career paths look like for those who have achieved high-level leadership positions in public sector organizations? And sort of the second piece to this is how do the men and women who've achieved these high-level leadership positions say they are qualified for the job, say this is why you should hire me? So how do women and men establish and express their legitimacy for leadership roles in public sector organizations? So I have two studies I'm going to present um, related to these research questions. And both of these studies, um, the context for both of these studies is U.S. federal regulatory organizations. So a U.S. federal regulatory organization would be something like the Food and Drug Administration or the Securities and Exchange Commission, for example. And we use the study context for a number of reasons. So one reason is because the people who work in these agencies really have broad power. They essentially have the powers of all three branches of government. Via their rulemaking activities, they interpret, they execute, and they make policy. And by doing this, they really have far-reaching impacts on our day-to-day -day life. Um, we don't think a lot about it, but the air we breathe, the education our children are getting at school, the highways we drive on, all of those things are impacted by the decisions made in these federal regulatory organizations. And finally, um, if we're going to think about gender diversity in leadership by looking at women who've actually reached these um, high-level positions, we need to study a context where there actually are some women in these high-level leadership positions. So um, in some prior work um, that I did with Karen Monahan, we found that in federal regulatory organizations, on average, about 36% of the top two leadership levels are held by women. So that's far better than other contexts. Um, so in the same time period, I think 18% of congressional seats were held by women and only 15% of corporate board positions were held by women. So the federal regulatory um, context provides us um, an area where we actually see and I guess the, the one bullet that's not here that I should also mention is um, when I agreed to come um, here to present my research, I don't think I put together that we would also be in a time where we have a new president who's appointing people to positions like this. So, um, and I don't know if our new president might be an outlier compared to what I'm talking about today, but it's certainly timely, I guess that's my point. Okay, so um, in the public management world, in the public management literature, we don't know a lot about what career paths look like and how they evolve over time, but we do know some things. We do know that women are more likely to hold leadership positions in agencies that are younger or newer. We also know that women are more likely than men to have held the position just under the top level before they get to that top level. We also know that women are more likely to be promoted rapidly in regulatory types of agencies as opposed to other types of agencies. We also know that women are more likely to hold leadership positions in agencies that work in what we might consider to be feminine policy areas. So um, agencies that do work with women and children, that might be considered feminine, and agencies that do work in finance or homeland security, that might be considered masculine. And so while this research is important because it draws our attention to factors that seem to matter in terms of gender and leadership, we still don't know anything about how people have arrived at these positions and what their career paths have looked like. So um, this is in line with thinking about the first research question. This is the first study I want to present in thinking about what career paths look like and if there are any differences between men and women and if, in fact, these career paths are actually gendered in terms of federal regulatory leadership. So um, to select our sample, we took the um, 
12 federal regulatory agencies that are considered major by the Federal Regulatory Directory. So the Federal Regulatory Directory, I don't know if anybody's familiar with it, but it's a really big book. Um, it's probably eight or 900 pages, and it's produced every two years by Congressional Quarterly Press. And um, it has highly detailed information about federal regulatory agencies, about 125 or so of them. Um, and they cat this book categorizes federal regulatory agencies as major, departmental, and other. So we selected the major group from um, the federal regulatory directories. And we looked at these directories that were published between 1983 and 2013, and we identified all the top-level leaders for these 12 agencies, and that came out to 89 people. And our sample ended up being 83 people because for six people, um, there was not career path data available. So we have 83 individuals in our sample, and of those 83, 22 are women and 61 are men. And for each of these 83 individuals, we established complete career histories. So we used publicly available data, starting with the bio bios that are available in that federal regulatory directory, as well as a variety of other databases, like um, the LexisNexis biographical database, the Complete Marquee, LinkedIn, and just general internet searches to confirm the career paths that we established. So for each of the individuals in our sample, from when they graduated from college to 2013, or prior if they left the workforce before then, we know where they worked in each year of employment. So um, when we looked at these 83 career histories, we looked at each organization that each person worked in, and we coded them for organization types, and we have four types of organizations. So um, our first type is a federal agency, so that would be something like the Food and Drug Administration or Health and Human Services. Our second type is a private sector organization, and that would be something like Bank of America or Apple, for instance. Our third type is a law firm, and Latham and Watkins is the one that comes to my head, but there's a number of them. And the fourth type we called Other. So all the organizations that people worked at that didn't fall neatly into those first three categories ended up in this Other bucket. And when we look at the organizations that are in this Other bucket, they really are nonprofit or government related. So there are things like um, charities or advocacy groups or municipal governments or um, the House of Representatives, for instance. So it's this other, this other group that seems to be nonprofit and government related. And in addition to getting these career histories <coughs> and coding for organization type, we measured a number of individual and organization level characteristics. Go ahead. Just a question. How come you, why, did, why not separate out government agencies from, from nonprofits or nonprofits? Um, we didn't, though we probably could. Um, I think that the number of organizations that fell into other, we might have very few in that nonprofit category, though I'm not sure. It's probably something we could, look, we could check out. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't, have it, I don't have an answer, but I think that is something we could try. Um, so it, we looked at individual characteristics, things like the age. Oh, go ahead. This one, a quick question. Mm -hmm. Are all those people appointed? Yes. Okay. So um, I was going to say this later, but I'll say it now because it's a good question. Um, so these are people who lead, who lead these 12 regulatory organizations, and the President of the United States has the power to appoint that person, and then they have to go before a Senate committee for a hearing, which is what we're seeing on TV now um, for the appointments that our president is currently making. So they go before the Senate committee for a hearing. So these are politically appointed individuals. So we also know things about these people like um, the age when they were appointed, how many children they have, where they got their college degree and what their degree was in. 
Um, we know organization level characteristics for the organization that they were appointed to lead. So things like how many employees are in that organization and how much rulemaking activity that organization engages in and a number of other things which I'll, I'll show you on a um, slide in a minute. And we looked at this data and we, we did two types of basically descriptive analysis. So the first one was we looked at various career characteristics and just compared them between men and women. So we have some descriptive statistics on, you know, for instance, on average, how many children do the men have and on average, how many children do the women have. So I'll show you those results in a minute. And then we looked at career patterns. So we're asking this question, what do career paths look like for these men and women who achieve these high level leadership positions? So we took these career histories and we did a sequence analysis, which is essentially an optimal matching and cluster analysis routine that looks at every single career path and compares it to every single other career path and then groups career paths that are similar. And once those career paths are in groups, we then looked at each career path group and looked at the career path and gave them a label based on their characteristics. So when we look at the basic descriptive statistics of careers, there's a couple things that are notable. Um, <laughs> women tend to spend, on average, less time in each organization that they work at. Women tend to work at a fewer number of organizations than men. Um, women tend to have less children than men. Women tend to work in younger organizations, larger organizations, and organizations that are responsible for implementing more legislation and engage in more rulemaking. So these are just basic descriptive statistics for the characteristics that we collected about the individuals and the organizations. So just to be clear, um, if women are spending less years in an organization and worked at fewer organizations, it sounds like the women in your study had spent fewer years working. Is this because the, they were on average younger, or is this? I think they are younger, but not. Um, we don't know if that's a statistically significant difference. So I don't. I think the fact that the, our sample size for women is 22 makes it really hard to know if any of these are statistically significant. In a descriptive sense, this is what the data says. So, um, sort of the meat of this study is thinking about career patterns. And when we looked at the career patterns for women, three patterns emerged. So this picture is a, um, a dendrogram. So this is the, I don't know how familiar people are with um, cluster analysis, but this is the results of the cluster analysis. So each vertical line in this picture represents one of the women in our sample. So there's 22 lines there, and the cluster analysis grouped these into three groups. And then we looked at the three groups, and we gave each of these three groups labels. So the first group, the largest group, 12 of the 22 women in that group, we called public servants. And we labeled this group public servants because the career path for the individuals in this group is dominated by work in federal agencies and that other category where people are working in nonprofits and other levels of government and advocacy groups. So uh, of the 12 women in the sample combined, they worked for 395 years. And of those 395 years, 57% of them were in federal agencies and 31% were in that other category. So we called this group public servants because their career paths are characterized by work in these two areas. And in addition, they spent very little time in law firms or the private sector. And an example of a person in this group is Mary Sheila Gall. So she's in our sample because she headed the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And over her career, she worked for the Consumer Product Safety Commission, Health and Human Services, the Office of Personnel Management, the House of Representatives, and the White House. Yes. 
Yep. So I'll talk. I think I'll talk about the attorneys. I'll talk about the attorneys now. Oh, I'll talk about the sector hoppers, and then I'll talk about the attorneys. So the the second group, our smallest group, we called sector hoppers, and we called them sector hoppers because their career paths are characterized by movement back and forth between private sector organizations and federal agencies. So for the four people in this group, our smallest group, they worked for 155 years combined, and 42% of those years were in federal agencies, and 55% of those years were in private sector firms. And of the four people in this group, they all have advanced degrees either in law or international studies. Whereas the people in the public service group, I don't know if I said this, their advanced degrees are in a real wide variety of things. So some of them are in law, some of them are in public administration, some of them are in medical or biological sciences. So I think there are probably lawyers in each of these groups, it's just where they're using their law. So category of attorneys that specifically really talk about Yeah. In fact, we called the, this group attorneys because this is the only group <laughs> that every single person spent a chunk of their career working in a law firm. Attorneys by training, yeah. yeah. And that's pretty common in regulatory types of organizations because it's so. But you could be an attorney in the public sector. Correct. Yeah. So, so the point you're making might be maybe we call these uh, attorneys something slightly different. Yeah, I that, think it would be. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd be interested if all 22 of them were attorneys or 20 of the 22 right. attorneys that they hadn't been in private law firms. So if I called them, you know, private law firm attorneys, yeah. that would be more clear. Thank you. So the third group we label attorneys, and we label this group attorneys because all of them worked in law firms at some point in their career. And almost all of them, I think one of them was not trained in law. So um, an example of a person in this group is Deborah Mayoris, and she's in our, in our sample because she headed up the um, FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. And her career path, she worked in the Federal Trade Commission, she worked for the US Department of Justice, she spent 20 years working in a law firm, and she worked for the US District Court. So her career path <laughs> looks a little different than the career paths on the, on the prior slides. Um, so again, three career paths emerged for women, and I, I actually think the, the most interesting thing about these career paths is the largest chunk of our sample, 12, just more than half, we labeled public servants because the majority of their careers were spent working in the public sector in some capacity. And the smallest group are the group we called sector hoppers, and I'm saying this now because that'll be important when I talk about the men's career paths next. So when we looked at the career paths for the 61 men in our sample, four career paths emerged. So um, you can see again, this is the dendrogram, and each line represents one of the 61 men in our sample. And when we looked at the groups created by the cluster <coughs> analysis, we labeled the first group, the largest group, movers. Um, and this, this is similar to um, Mary Blair Loy has some work where she refers to people who move across sectors as movers and shakers. So this is sort of following some of her work. So 20 of the 61 individuals in our sample, 61 men in our sample, fall into this movers group. And we call this group movers because their career paths are dominated by work in a wide variety of organizations. So they spend a lot of time working in that other category. And they move around in a variety of these types of organizations. So we call this, this um, group movers. An example would be William Gould, and he's in our sample because he headed up the National Labor Relations Board. And he worked as a professor, he worked in a law firm, he worked at the National Labor Relations Board, and the AFL-CIO. How is a mover different from a sector hopper? I'll tell you. 
So a sector hopper, <laughs> so our next largest group we called sector hoppers. And we called them sector hoppers because their career paths are really characterized by movement between private sector organizations and federal agencies. So the movers were a little more variety. They worked in the, the organizations that we categorized as other, as well as the federal agencies and a few other things. The sector hoppers predominantly worked in the private sector and federal agencies and moved back and forth. So 17 of the 61 men in our sample <laughs> fell into this group. Um, and f of the 17 people here, they worked together 696 years, and 58% of those years were in private sector firms, and 19% were in federal agencies. And an example of a person who would be considered a sector hopper by this analysis is Donald Powell, and he's in our sample because he headed up the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Commission. So he worked for the Bank of America, a private sector firm, Stone Energy Corp, a private sector firm, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, the FDIC, and several banks. So he went back and forth between private sector and public sector. So we have, um, different than the women in our sample, we have two groups of attorneys here. And one group of attorney we call, one group of attorneys we call public sector attorneys because their work is dominantly in federal agencies and they're trained in law. So they're using their law degree rather in a law firm, they're using it to work um, in public sector organizations. And an example would be Evan Kemp. So he worked at a law firm. He, he's in our sample because he headed up the Equal, Op Equal Employment Opportunity <laughs> Commission, the EEOC. He worked at a nonprofit. He also worked at the SEC and the IRS. So we called him a public sector attorney. The final group we call private sector attorneys. So this group is a little bit more similar to the group of attorneys in our women. Um, their work is dominated by um, work in law firms, and all of them are lawyers by training. So of the 358 years um, these eight people worked, 71% of those years were spent in law firms. And an example is Robert Batista. He's in our group because he headed up the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, and he spent 35 years in a law firm in addition to working in the NLRB. Are there, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. Um, so I, I don't have, um, anecdotally, women were more likely to be appointed to these positions when it was a Democratic president appointing them. Um, I don't have that data here, though. And Stereotypically, yeah. I don't have that. I, I, in fact, I think there's a number of um, different things we can still do. And that, that might be one of them. Go ahead. I didn't know if you disaggregated or also coded race. We did not, because we collected this data from, um, like, we don't know how people identify, I guess. Right. Um, and and most in most cases, we could find a picture of a person, but we couldn't look at that picture and right. say. So um, I, don't ha I only have gender. I don't have any intersectional. Um, though we do have political party um, of each of these people. As you're looking at career paths, mm -hmm. one of the things um, which I haven't seen mm -hmm. uh, a good research survey on, but it mm -hmm. seems pretty clear, is that men tend to have more elasticity within their networks and they tend to be more transactional, mm -hmm. so that men are able to be movers or sector hoppers right. um, with easier ability. And even if women pursued being sector hoppers, they yeah. were less successful in that right. pursuit. Because they're sort of violating each other's assumptions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, I, and my question about race really relates to that paradigm mm -hmm. um, because I think we'd see some of that taking place on race and then it would be mitigated 
right. and inter the intersection of race and gender. Yeah, no, and I agree, and I, I think I was saying this, saying this to Hannah earlier when we were talking that um, in public management literature, we haven't gotten good at looking at intersectionality yet. Um, and I think sometimes because the data's not available, um, or at least in an easily observable way, but I think it's really important. I mean, I think it's really hard to look at just one category and not the other. And great that you are. <laughs> well, I hope to. <laughs> so um, in thinking about, um, you know, in, in some, I guess I would say, that original question that was driving the study was what do career paths look like in public service for men and women? And we were focused on people that actually achieve these top-level leadership positions. And what seems to be is women tend to build careers in public service, and I say that because of the 22 women in our sample, the majority of them fell into that category that we called public servants. You know, they got to this high-level leadership position and they spent most of their careers working in public service. And this is to what you were just saying, um, men seem to build <coughs> their careers by moving across different types of organizations and different sectors. So of the 61 men in our sample, more than half of them fell into the two groups, the movers and the sector, ho sector hoppers, that were characterized by a lot of movement um, in their career. So this was sort of the first piece that, that describing what the career paths looked like was sort of a first piece to this larger project on climbing the ladder and what gender looks like um, in public sector careers. So even if that um, study gives us a sense of what these career paths look like, we still don't know about the factors that have shaped these career paths. And one thing that um, has shaped career paths in terms of studies that have been done in the private sector is how people identify as leaders. You know, when you Identity is sort of the answer to the question, who am I, and how you might define yourself. So the second study that I'm going to present really addresses this question. You know, how do men and women establish and express legitimacy for leadership positions? How do they say, I am qualified for this position, and here is why you should hire me? So um, there's a, a quite a bit of literature um, out here on this, so when we think about gender and leadership. And, and much of the literature suggests that um, when we think about gender and leadership, the characteristics in a stereotypical way that we assign to a leader and the characteristics that we assign to women in a stereotypical way are not compatible. So we think of leaders as decisive and aggressive, and we think of women as kind and comparing and collaborative. And when we try and put those two things together, that's one of the reasons why um, we see less <coughs> gender diversity in leadership. So because of this, incongruent nature to these um, characteristics that we assign to leaders and women, women may engage in extra efforts to signal an appropriate leadership identity, and efforts that men may not engage in in the same way. And the, the frame that we're using to think about this question, how do men and women claim legitimacy or claim that they are qualified or claim that they have a leadership identity for this job is narrative identity work. So narrative identity um, is really efforts that people use to craft their identity in line with the claims they're making for this leadership position. And narrative identity involves individual agency on the part of the person who's making this claim to leadership, interactions with others in their world, and interactions with the general social context. So um, self-narratives are um, stories that we tell. They're what we wear and language that we use and emotions that we have. And all of those things we use to craft our identity um, as a leader. And we use these self-narratives to manage the impressions of others that we're interacting with, um, to account for our past history. Um, and when it comes to the workplace, these 
these, um, this narrative identity work is often used during role transitions or when people are seeking new opportunities. So this is the frame that we're thinking about this question. How do men and women claim legitimacy for these leadership positions? Um, and just like our last study, we used the same sample of individuals. So it's the sample of 83 people who reached these high-level leadership positions in these 12 major regulatory um, organizations. And um, for these 83 people, um, we got Senate confirmation hearing transcripts. So what, um, to your question earlier, each of these people was appointed by a president, went before a Senate committee for a hearing, and during those hearings, those hearings follow um, a general pattern. So the first part of the hearing, other senators come to the hearing and introduce the nominee, and in the second part of the hearing, the nominee themselves get to, gets to read a prepared statement where they say, here's why I'm qualified for this job. And the third part of the hearing is the part that we're seeing on TV now a lot. It's the question and answer session between the committee members and the nominee. And these are um, ideal for thinking about this question of narrative identity or how people claim that they're qualified for these leadership positions because we get to see the individual agency. We get to see the person saying, here is why I'm qualified. But we also get to see the interaction with the committee members or people in power. And we get to see um, how people are introduced or presented in this social context as well. Go ahead, Hannah. So I know you're not presenting it this way, but would you have the potential to match the? Yes. Oh. Um, we would to to match where these people that we have the transcripts for, which groups they fall into, with, with their career trajectories with their testimony. Yes, and I, I don't have that now, but I, we could. So for the 83 people in our sample, um, we have these Senate confirmation hearing transcripts and they're verbatim um, for 67 individuals, for 17 women and for 50 men. And I think for the, the people we don't have transcripts for, we believe that a good majority of them were um, recess appointments. So there isn't, isn't a verbatim transcript for their hearing. Um, it's also possible that a couple of the older transcripts weren't available, though we looked really hard. So um, I'm looking at Catalina because Catalina did a lot of this work. So um, because our um, research question is pretty exploratory, we're taking, go ahead. Yeah, I have a question over here. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see it. Yes, I'm so, I didn't see it. Okay. Um, just a quick question, in terms of um, other kinds of narrative moves, mm -hmm. do, do you have any data on whether people have participated in leadership training programs or been signaled, uh, you know, participated in fellowships for leadership? Or right, so signaling their identity as yeah. a leader. I don't. Um, Though that would be great to collect, um, or if they have like an executive MBA, for instance, yes. right? So we do have graduate school data for each of these people, um, but I don't have um, data on leadership training programs as such. But that's something that um, I think is important. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so again, because this is sort of an exploratory study, you know, we don't know a lot about career paths in public service. We're taking um, an inductive approach and we use grounded theory methods to analyze these transcripts. So we used open and axial coding and essentially two of us, Catalina and I, took a sample of transcripts. We independently engaged in our own open coding and generated memos. We circulated memos between us and the rest of the research team and then we met to discuss our codes and agree upon first order codes. And we sort of followed this process until we're working our way through the transcripts. And we're about a third of the way through the transcripts now, so this is ongoing um, work. Go ahead. So I'm, I'm very not familiar with the, with the setting. Do you observe in between 1983 and 2013 anybody who was, uh, who's, was not confirmed? 
in the unit? We so, looked. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a good question. So um, we looked, like we were looking for these sort of alternative explanations. So and the idea is to compare what you code with the failed one or with the men, men's one. So we compared the women and we compared <coughs> the men. We looked for failed confirmations and we couldn't find any. And I think part of that is, though maybe <coughs> now it will be different. I don't know. But part part of that is. In an informal sense, before a president nominates somebody to one of these positions, they're fairly sure that the person will pass the hearing. E even if there's a lot of discussion about it, they're fairly sure in an informal sense. And oftentimes, if there's a sense that a person will not be approved, that person will withdraw their name before they even reach the hearing point. So we were hoping we would find hearings where people didn't get approved because that would give us a really good comparison. Um, but there weren't any, and I think that's partially because of this sort of informal process that goes on behind the scenes before the president even nominates somebody. Also because regulatory agencies aren't as sort of controversial, the more controversial mm -hmm. picks are Secretary of Defense or Secretary mm -hmm. of Labor, like we're seeing now the Labor Secretary yeah. dropped out yesterday. Right. So I think with regulatory agencies, like who heads up the FDIC is not like on the top of people's agendas. Well, I mean, I think, I think Yes, I think that's a good point. But I also think that um, what we're seeing now is just, this is a whole different ballgame, I think, than we've witnessed in the past. Like, everything is much more divisive right now than it might have been um, in the future. So I also think that um, these appointments are not as popular in the press as those. Yes. So they might be just as divisive, but we don't hear about, people don't know because they're not as popular. Okay, so um, I will talk a little bit about the findings from our analysis. Um, so um, this is um, represents our coding structure, and again, this, these are preliminary findings, and we're still in the process. But and and I I'll talk about some of these um, codes in the following slides with the um, time that I have left. So. Um, when we think about this, um, this idea of claiming legitimacy, of saying this is why I'm qualified to be part of this leadership position, there's really three mechanisms that we see in the legislative transcript. So one that we call selling, one that we call proving, and one that we call challenging. And I'll, I'll talk about just one of these right now. But So when the individuals read their personal statement, that's re really where they're engaging in proving. They're creating a unique identity for themselves by talking about their personal history, saying, you know, I am the child of immigrant parents. You know, these are statements that they make. They're proving their qualifi qualifications by narrating their experience. They're giving anecdotes from prior work experiences. And they're positioning themselves to be leaders by talking about their professional identities, by saying, I've been a public servant my whole life, or I'm qualified for this job because I'm a sector hopper, essentially. I worked in law, I worked in business, and I've worked in the public sector. So this is how we reach these sort of theoretical categories that emerge. And I'll talk a little bit about each one of these and how the flavor of selling, proving, and challenging was different for the men in our sample um, as compared to the women in our sample. Go ahead. Um, to what degree does the audience change? Because I could imagine that mm -hmm. I would position myself vis-a-vis yeah. the people who I'm talking to. Correct. Yes. Yeah, so that's I a, might talk more about X. That's than a y. great question. And um, actually, we're in the process of we, um, Catalina, um, as well. We're in the process of collecting things like what's the gender distribution on the committee that they're testifying before, and what the political orientation is on the committee that they're testifying for, as well as what the um, 
gender and political orientation of Congress was, the Senate at the time. So it's a great question, and I don't have an answer, but I will have an answer at some point in the future. <laughs> so when we think about selling, selling is the account of someone else highlighting the skills, qualifications, connections, events, and experiences of the nominee. And when we looked at this selling behavior for women, and this largely happens in the early part of the hearings when people are coming to introduce and sometimes endorse the nominee. When we look at the selling behaviors for women, um, they're characterized by listing and repeating past experience and qualifications in order to lend credibility to the woman who's being nominated and to gain approval from the committee. And when we look at the selling behaviors for men, there's very little selling that's actually going on. So when we look at um, men, um, the selling behaviors, the introductions by others, prior experience and qualifications are almost assumed. They're rarely listed. They're already credible, and the, not, the introducer is assuming <coughs> that the committee's already going to approve. So some <coughs> examples from the transcripts for women, this quote um, is from someone introducing Betsy Moeller, who was the head of FERC, the Federal um, Energy Regulatory Commission. Betsy has repeatedly, and I underscore, repeatedly demonstrated an ability to work together with various groups to develop workable, and I underscore workable, solutions to complex issues with many competing interests. So this person's introducing her and saying, she, I swear she is qualified for this job. You know? um, and here's another example um, for Joan Smith, who headed the CPSC. Ms. Joan Smith received her Juris Doctorate from American University and is admitted to practice law before the US Supreme Court, the US Court of Appeals. And I have an ellipsis here because the list was very, very long of where she's able to practice law. She is eminently qualified to serve in this position. So the flavor of these is, let me remind you, you've read this person's um, CV already and you've read the package materials, but really, she's qualified to do this job. And for men, it's a very different flavor. It's, it's almost the qualifications are assumed, so I'm just going to put in my two cents. I've known Richard, this is for Richard Breeden who headed up the SEC, I've known Richard and known of his achievements. I want to be here this morning to just add my words of support for this nominee. You all have his resume. It's a distinguished resume for a relatively, I'll strike relatively young man. And one of them, which I know Catalina really likes this quote, I think it's fairly, I think it's fair to call Julius a real renaissance man of public service. So the flavor of those are very different in an introduction than the flavor for the women. Go ahead. more to say on that in a minute when we talk about the challenging thing. Do you observe a pattern of in selling behavior when it's a woman introducing another woman or when it's a man introducing a woman? This goes to her question. I don't know yet. Um, but we are, I think you have some of this data already, right? Yeah. Collecting the gender of the person um, who's introducing them. It's another senator. literature does, this, this is in line with existing literature to the extent that you know, women have to prove and reprove their qualifications with each move that they make. 
Um, but I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't think we know whether they're moving horizontally or vertically. But you did say that there were more movers among the men. There were more movers, yes. her argument, maybe there's something there. So I'm just yeah. wondering if you look yeah. more closely at yeah. the, you know. That's a great idea. Yeah, thank you. <coughs> The appointment process in many ways mirrors an electoral process because in essence you're requiring votes just from a more constrained environment in the nomination process to get there is right. somewhat different. Um, it's probably worth looking at mm -hmm. the electoral literature where we find that the cohorts of women yeah. at whatever sort of area you're looking at are more qualified than their male counterpart because yeah. of what you talked about earlier, which they really are dramatically pre-vetted. Right. Yeah. So not now, but yeah. normally right. people yeah. um, have already gone through <laughs> that type of um, robustness yeah. check. And then my one other thought is because selling, I think, has a very gendered connotation, Yeah. Um, the term that we tend to use mm -hmm. um, in electoral politics and yeah. the study of it is external validation. Okay. And you might just yeah. want to... No, I know. I appreciate this. Yeah. I mean, the labeling... You know, we're a third of the way into these transcripts and the labeling of these theoretical categories. Mm -hmm. I don't think these will be the final labels. Yeah. So, and you're right, that has a gendered connotation, mm -hmm. the phrase selling. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so our next um, sort of mechanism by which men and women are claiming legitimacy for their positions is proving. And, and this is the most um, personal of these aspects. This is the nominee themselves saying, here's who I am, here's my history, here's why I'm qualified for this job, and here's where I'm going to take the agency moving forward. And when we look at, so, so we define this as the account of the nominee themselves building the case for their legitimacy as leaders for these positions. So when we look at women's proving and when we look at men's proving, they're very different. So the women's proving is very backward looking. They're again repeating their past experiences and qualifications. They're often establishing themselves as public servants. They're establishing some kind of identity and connection with public service to prove that they're qualified for this position. And the men are a little more forward looking. They're already viewed as qualified, so rather than talking about what they've done in the past, they're going to talk about what they'll do in the future, where they'll take the agency in the future. So for women, um, this is for Inez Tenenbaum, who headed up the CPSC. She says, and the, these are sort of the summative statements at the end of their um, personal, at the end of their personal statements. These are sort of at the end, the final part where they're saying, remember, here's why I'm qualified to do this job. So my life's mission has been enhancing the quality of life for children and families in South Carolina. This mission has remained constant, although I've worked in different venues and on many issues affecting the safety, health, and well-being of the children and families in my state. Indeed, my public service will be the foundation for my work, protecting and working for the American people, alongside all of you. So the flavor of this is, I've been a public servant my whole life. I've been protecting children and families my whole life. I am going to collaborate with you. This is why you want to hire me for this job. This is why I have legitimate claims to this leadership position. Whereas the men, you know, in their summative statements, so I have Richard Breeden and William Gould here, um, the men say, you know, if I'm confirmed, I'll devote my full efforts to maintaining and improving the record of this commission because I must be able to make it better than it already is. And um, William Gould says, I believe that my chairmanship will usher in an environment of collegiality and civility in which respect for the views of one another and the values of hard work are promoted. So the men are saying, this is what I'm going to do going forward. And the women are saying, you should hire me. I should have this job because of my past and my identity as a public servant. Um, 
maybe another way to look at this, and additional, but not another, yeah. an additional thing is a bit of likability going on here as well. I mean, I'm thinking so of say like, that again. I'm thinking about competence likability dilemma oh, that women likeability. face, but not men. Yeah. Right. And women want to be liked, but yeah. men don't necessarily want to be, sure. need to be liked or think they are liked right. anyway. Um, so I'm seeing some, I'm seeing some liking there, you mm -hmm. know, alongside with you. And right. I really, here's my identity. Well, so it's it's person. as if they're, you know, trying to fit in with gender yeah. assumptions. Yes, yes, yes. You know, that you women are collaborators and caring and, caring and kind, and you will work with us. And the men are saying, I, I am agentic and decisive and aggressive, and I will go forward. about the final mechanism for claiming legitimacy is challenging. And here's the part where we see most of the interaction with the other members of the committee, because there's a lot of question and answers. And when we look at the question and answer sessions for the women, they're repeatedly getting questions about their technical expertise, and more importantly, about their management experience. Like, you know, can you really manage a large agency? Are you capable of that? And the men are getting, are not getting the same technical um, and management questions. It's as if their technical and management skills are already assumed. So sometimes they get questions about, um, that are very forward-looking, you know, about what they're going to do about this particular issue that is now arising. Sometimes they get questions that aren't even really questions. They're sort of good old boys kind of chumming around in the room. So I'll give you some examples. So for the women, this is for um, Jane Henney, who headed the FDA. So one of the questions she got was, Dr. Henney, you spent 10 years at the NIH. What do you think from that experience you will bring to the FDA, you know, with that kind of background? Um, another question she got was, so I would appreciate your thoughts on how you can try and make sure that you're on course and do not get pulled and pushed around. So these are questions that um, she's getting about her management ability. And, you know, do you really think 10 years at the NIH, what will that bring you, you know, to, to your work at the FDA? Whereas for the men, um, I have Richard Breeden and um, Christopher Cox, both for the SEC. You know, his question was, what is your view of that situation, the competitive situation in the international marketplace? So they want his wisdom and his opinion. Um, and Richard Cox got a question that said, you know, were you a member of a fraternity followed by laughter? So women didn't have sort of the same flavor to their question and answers as the men did. So in sum, thinking about the second study, um, it seems that both men and women are asserting their personal and their professional qualifications, but possibly in gendered ways. So both in the individual agency as well as interactions with other members, women are reinforcing and repeating past experience and particularly highlighting their public service. They're proving and reproving their ability to manage people and organizations. 
and men are talking about their experience, but not just in the public sector, and it's more so that their experience, their training, and their management are just assumed. And what they're saying and the questions they're getting asked and the way people are introducing them is much more forward-looking. And finally, claiming legitimacy for leadership is an interactional process, and I think we shouldn't lose sight of that. You know, we, we are tempted to talk about um, how men and women, women, um, can do this better, can say, I am qualified to be a leader, but it really is an interactional process, and I think these legislative transcripts show that um, very clearly, both in the introduction part and the Q&A part. So if I were to think about both of these studies together, um, they, they go hand in hand, I think there's a number of implications both for um, accumulation of capital and invoking of capital, I guess, um, as well as narrative identity. <coughs> So when we think about the accumulation of capital, the first study, the sequence analysis, suggests that both men and women are accumulating social and human capital over the course of their careers, but the nature of that social and human capital might be very different. So for women, um, they tend to be forming social capital in the form of strong ties, so these dense networks where there's a lot of people very connected to each other, and human capital that's narrow and specialized. Most of the women in our sample were in that public servants group. So they were moving around among different organizations, but they were moving around among different organizations in the public sector. So they were gaining experience and skills and qualifications in public sector work and connections that were in that same group as well. Whereas the men, most of our men were in those, those two groups, the movers and the sector hoppers that were characterized by a lot of movement across their careers. So they're gaining social capital also, but in the form of weak ties. They have these wide, sparse networks um, to a lot of different places. And human capital that's more varied. In fact, in some of the transcripts, and I didn't have it here, um, in their personal statements, men would say, you know, I have worked in the industry, I have worked in the federal government, and I'm a lawyer by training. Like, that's what makes me qualified for this job because I have all these different experiences. And finally, in thinking about narrative identity work, claiming that people are legitimate, claiming that one is legitimate for this particular leadership position, men seem to follow gendered expectations. Um, we expect men to be aggressive and say, here's why I'm qualified um, to be um, a leader in this position. And women violate gendered expectations in the sense that they're claiming that they are qualified for a leadership position. Uh, I'm sorry, um, but their self-advocacy still follows some of these gendered assumptions. They're talking, they're listing their qualifications over and over again as opposed to being more forward-looking. So I think there's um, implications for both of these studies in the way we think about the role of capital in how um, careers develop as well as the role of narrative identity work and how careers develop. So um, this is the beginning of this larger project, Climbing the Ladder and Careers in Public Service. And I think more than anything, these studies raise more questions um, than answers. So um, while we know what career patterns look like and we know a little bit about claiming legitimacy, we don't know why career patterns appear to be different for men and women. And I think um, some qualitative work would probably be the next step in this area. And, and one of the things that I think would be particularly important is being able to identify pivotal moments in someone's career, what were the really <coughs> important um, pieces of their career. We know what their career looked like, but we don't know what the weight of each of these positions were in terms of how their career developed. We also don't know um, how other factors have influenced men and women's choices to sort of stay in one sector or move around across different organizations. So things like um, familial responsibilities or work-life conflict, we don't know how those are um, influencing men and women in public service. Um, and these two studies are done in the context of the federal government, so we don't know if different contexts would reveal different patterns. So 
we are currently starting some work um, with municipalities in North Carolina um, where women are far less represented in leadership than they are um, in the federal government. Go ahead. One additional piece which mm -hmm. will be hard to get at but I think is actually critical mm -hmm. in understanding the dynamic. Whenever one receives a high level appointment, mm -hmm. they had a very strong sponsor. Yes. And it's a process which mm -hmm. depends upon sort of in-group dynamic, sponsorship, and there's a tremendous amount of jockeying that takes yeah. place long before even the internal vetting. Right. And sort of whose social capital and yeah. what networks, who has access, how they yeah. play out. Um, and then it gets into Sarah's comments yeah. as well, you know, you know, Dems and Republicans right. have slightly different processes yeah. for right. that and networks as well. Right. But I think I think that's a piece that this sort of skirts around. I don't know if Yeah, you but I mean you're right. That, and that's you know. the kind of thing that talking to people would probably be a little bit more revealing. Like who were the major players in you know, helping your you know, career? Who were your advocates? Who were your mentors? Who were your role models? And you know, it's interesting because I, I think it's possible that career patterns look like this because there are more opportunities for women in public sector organizations, but it's also possible that they perceive it to be that way um, because of the role models that they see. It's also possible that men and women are implicitly encouraged to follow these different career paths by their sponsors. I think there's, there's one other piece. I don't yeah. have any data on this other than sort of watching this take place. Yeah. I think men also sector hop just as um, women tend to stay in public service mm -hmm. and it's identity-based. Yeah. I think men often sector hop and also create economic gains from their time in government back into the private sector and back right. in and out. And Each move creates an economic gain, yeah. Yeah, not just in the salary, but in then how they use the knowledge they yeah. either cre created, gained, yeah. generated regulation yeah. they made and how right. they profit off of different sectors. Yeah. Great, thank you. Go ahead. Other work to look at, um, uh, I, I think this whole question of networks is super mm -hmm. interesting of all yeah. the networks we have. Um, maybe uh, you know already Forrest Grossberg's work on star women in the private sector, yes, right. where he found that yeah. women have more networks outside the organization mm -hmm. than within the organization. Yeah. Something very different from what you're finding. And that makes it I'm, actually I'm more. I'm implying. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but that, you don't yeah. know. But I, I'm, yeah. I'm actually thinking that maybe there's something different going on in two sectors. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't exclude that at all. Yeah. You know, maybe kind of the loyalty, the identity, I'm a true yeah. public servant right. is more important in the Data, right? Yeah, so each year. So, we, but we every year, your point is everybody's employed every year. 
Yes. Okay. So, so there's no. So there, so there are any, so, that, so, you, so you have you have no data on multi-year employment gaps. No, but it's also possible that someone took six months off while they were working. Right, at, they could take leave, but not multi-year gaps. But that wouldn't show, right. you know, because their CV would say, "Well, I'm still, you know, right, exactly. Right. Okay. Go ahead. I'd be interested to see if the women in the public sector are adding more kids than the people outside of in the public service group. You mean? You know, I might actually know that. Let me see. I have some more exciting slides. Um, Wards cluster for the women. Do I have that here? Oh, I don't have it. Here's some um, descriptive statistics based on the cluster. And I don't, that's the one I don't have here. I don't know, but that's a good question. Director of the CIA versus mm -hmm. the deputy director. There's been yeah. a few now a few women in that deputy role, and so I think women might rule themselves out in an appointed position where there's a lot of public scrutiny, and it's sort yeah. of we're sort of not comfortable yeah. being that limelight like yeah. that, and being so publicly scrutinized. Right. Our families, or it's just sort of yeah. feels different. So I think looking at the difference between the number of women yeah. in one one level down yeah. would be That's also a great idea. And helpful. I actually think with federal directories, federal regulatory directories have some. Taking the narratives 
imagine that having this position is the end of their Sorry. careers. No, having this position is not the end. So, do you think? Um, so, so the question is, uh, how is life after having this position? No, there are gender difference. They move yeah. again to the like private sector. Like where they go yeah. when they, they leave these positions. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't have an answer, but we have that data. I mean, if if they, um, we have that data for anybody who um, is still in the workforce after they left their position, and it was before 2013. So I don't know. So that that is an interesting question, though. What happens when they they leave these positions? president of the university seems to, um, seems, seems to be a career path for women now, yeah. which has led a whole yeah. bunch of women up to the top. Yeah, and that's still, I mean, they've been presidents of large public universities, haven't they? So there's still some right. public service element to that, too. Uh, this is kind of like a general comment question kind of thing. I'm, I, I'm wondering what this means for younger people who are, take, are not, like, taking one job that they're in or one right. industry that they're in for right. 20 years. They're just hopping around a lot. Yeah. The latest latest data I saw was that the average 29-year-old in the United States has had seven jobs. Wow. Um, and so I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, if, if for men that seems to not matter if they want to be the head of some federal agency, it seems to actually be beneficial. But for women, that might not be true, or maybe the norm is going to be is changing, and yeah. so that might not matter as much. And I'm kind of just curious about what your thoughts are. I, I think that's a great question. And Hannah and I were having a similar conversation um, in this respect. You know, both, both of us and probably others in the room teach in MPA programs. So we're teaching the people who are going to go out and run the state, um, some of them at the very early stages of their career. And their view on what their career might look like is probably very different than it was however many years ago. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. But sort of picking up on this sort of this being the appointments that how should we think about this sort of being the recruitment done by external people compared yeah. to sort of lower level positions yeah. where recruitment is done by people perhaps observing you within yeah. the organizations where we have yeah. those types of career well you know I think another context to study these questions in that would get at some of that is the senior executive service so the senior executive service in the federal government is um, like an elite workforce, but they're not appointed individuals, and they can rise up through these senior executive service positions to very high levels, but not political appointees. So they would be, they would be a good group to think about those kind of questions. And I think there's quite a bit of senior executive service data out there. That's probably an interesting to look. And there's probably, you know, those are the mid-level executives, not maybe in the private sector. I, I was talking about possibly doing something comparative. statements made about the nominee, perhaps in the press, for example. Right. Um, um, and then also, if you have any data about um, the, the Americanness of yeah. your conclusions that you would draw from this. The Americanness, that's a great question. Um, so I don't have, we don't have data on, we did do some looking for um, stuff in the news, though, didn't we? I think we, when we were looking for 
possible people who didn't get confirmed, that's where we looked um, in the newspaper. So I don't have any data, but that actually would be an interesting addition because that would still be this you know, interaction with the social context in thinking about narrative identity. So that's a, a great idea. And the Americanness um, of this. This is an American study. I mean, uh, this is you know US federal um, regulatory organizations. And I would imagine in countries where um, maybe gender roles are a little less stereotypical than they are here, these might play out differently. Uh, career paths might play out differently. And the way men and women claim that they're legitimate for leadership positions might also play out differently. So another opportunity for a comparative study, maybe in Sweden. So Victoria said something in passing that I thought was really interesting and could have interesting implications for how you analyze it. You were saying that you thought Republicans and Democrats have different processes for making these appointments. So you could imagine mm -hmm. like things like private sector experience might be more valued for Republican right. appointees than Democratic appointees. But yeah. do you know, do you, or do you have a sense of there's also behind the scenes process differences in how these appointments get made? Yes. Yeah. Can so, you can you talk about that? Yeah. Because that could be. Um, I think one of the one of the factors is how people want to use their high-level appointments both to be instrumental on policy and what they want them to signal. So for example, one can pull articles from the New York Times and read about cabinet formation and gender yeah. um, with regularity. Mm -hmm. And there's sort of this tracking of how many of X did we get. Yeah, right. Um, you know, I always, talk within those and other stories that every single person in the cabinet's responsible for all Americans. Right. So it's not just this physical representation. Right. Yeah. Um, I think when we look at some of these um, appointments, there are those where people are really drawn because they come with a particular expertise in that arena. Yeah. Hence the woman who said NIH right. to FDA, right. yeah. right. you know. I've been um, versus I'm a high-level executive leader, and therefore I have the transferable skills of high-level executive leadership where the content yeah. is less mm -hmm. important. Yeah. And that we see men are often put into positions where they say, I've led X, therefore I can lead Y. Right, yeah. And there isn't a discussion on, you know, proving. Right. And um, I think the behind-the-scenes piece, like just what we're watching yeah. unfold now, we now have a team, so this party hasn't had executive power for eight years. Right. And now we have a candidate, now right. president, who really wasn't of the party. Mm -hmm. And then you have a battle taking place among party activists and people who are really outside the party about who's gonna be in the government and what's it gonna look like. Yeah. And then taking pride, yeah. you know, I think Democrats less traditionally say, we're gonna hire in a whole bunch of people to run the government who aren't from government. That's, that's not the lens usually. Right. Yeah, that's what, yeah. You're right. So then Republicans, and then and there's a gender interplay here, right? right? So we look at the Secretary of Education. So someone is taken who had some connection to education, but no governmental role in education, and she's female. Mm -hmm. And so there's some sort of um, conflating of did she get a difficult time in the process 
um, because of skill set? Did she get right. difficult time in the process because she's female? Did she get a difficult time? Or some interaction between the two. Right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and Republican, that's a third but, that, but that's another thing you could, I mean, this is fairly, I mean, it is interesting. Like, if you assume that, like, and I don't know if that maybe you managed to document it more than make sure it's not a stereotype, but, but let, but, you know, assuming that a Republican, assuming that a Republican narrative is, is more about, like, the dysfunctions of government, you mm -hmm. know, than the functions of government, you know, mm -hmm. and that you would just want, that actually that private sector expertise would be more beneficial in government, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whereas, Whereas Democrats might be more likely to think yeah. that public sector expertise is relevant to government, yeah. and mm -hmm. then another thing you could potentially look at is actually the gender composition of the of the cabinet at that time, because mm -hmm. because that could signal yeah. a that could signal political motivation for Democratic representation. <coughs> yeah, and and when you think of how you the appointments work, and, so and the composition of the rest of the commission, you know, these are people who are leading commissions in some senses. You know, the SEC is five members. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I'm thinking like the political motivations to put a woman in. Yeah. Do you right. know what well, I mean? Well, I mean, even the, on it, that committee. Yeah, even on that committee. Four yeah. Men putting a woman in is, is meaningful. Right. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. Right. So, right. So right. The sort of token. That that is really interesting. Yeah. And, and note, right, for political appointees within the U.S., you know that they're all in the plum book, and that's nearly, nearly four thousand positions, yeah. right? And so we're looking at that yeah. upper echelon, but the way it fills out is everybody's jockeying for the top, and right. after the top gets filled, it kind of filters down, so I think there's effects in there. Yeah. Well, I do know when, I do know who appointed all of these people to these positions, so we know that Democratic or Republican affiliation, we also know whether or not Congress was um, predominantly which party at the same mm -hmm. time, too, so that would help with that, thinking mm -hmm. about, you know, the government should be run by a businessman, mm -hmm. and the different ways that they think about vetting yeah, I think it'd be really interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, you I, we, I feel like we need to, we need to now move forward with. Well, now let's do this looking at political party. Now let's do this looking at time period. Now let's do this. So we have a number of those things that we, a number of dimensions that we want to look at these, both the transcripts and the career paths over. Um, we just haven't done it yet. So maybe we'll invite you back in a year or two, Definitely. and we'll tell you. <laughs> But we, and you can't cut it too many ways. I mean, that's your problem. You gotta, you gotta, you're gonna have to pull back at some point. Say right. the most theoretically meaningful right. categories are the gender character right. of the, you know, whatever the gender character of the the institution, and then the political party or, yeah. or whatever, whatever. Okay. Something theoretical. Carolina has collected a ton of this um, and has thought a lot about it. So, yeah. these transcripts about 65 pages. <laughs> oh, you're kidding! Yeah. Wow. When you're nominated, you'll know. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you um, for coming yeah. and for staying. And for uh, I hope you'll join us for next week. Uh, Francesca Gino is going to, who's a professor at uh, HBS, going to present on why are women underrepresented as leaders, two ideas from uh, recent psychological research. So she'll hear about that. All right, wonderful. Thank you all very much.